0: Welcome to the Broken Brain podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we respect and who we think will help improve your brain health, feel better, and help you live your best life. This week's guest is a dear friend of mine, Max Lugaver. Max is a top expert in nutrition for cognitive health, performance, and longevity. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Genius Foods, and the director of the upcoming film, Breadhead, the first ever documentary about dementia prevention through diet and lifestyle. Max is a regularly appearing brain health researcher on the Dr. Oz show, I think he's been on there more than anybody else that I've seen, and contributes as a health journalist to Medspace. He's a speaker most recently a keynoting the Biohacker Summit in Stockholm, Sweden, and coaches top performers on ways to hack cognition for greater well-being and performance, and recently a featured speaker at our Feel Good Summit that was hosted in Los Angeles, California. Max, an honor to have you on the Broken Brain Podcast. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Drew, for having me. This is awesome.
0: Absolutely. So, Max, you and I were just at, uh, there's a very popular wellness website, which many of our listeners know of. It's called uh, Mind Body Green. And every year they host a gathering for influencers in the health and wellness space. And you were there as one of the speakers.
1: Yeah, it was a privilege. It's
0: definitely a privilege to be there. Love Jason, their whole team. And you were on a panel, and you were on this panel of different experts. uh, And uh, actually, you were on a panel with Jason by himself, and you got this great question, which is the age old debate. Uh, There was a gentleman who was in the audience, a really awesome doctor. I won't name him out by name, uh, but at Loma Linda Hospital. And he came to you and he said, Max, The evidence on a vegan diet is so profound and there's so much evidence from all different places and so many nutritional studies on the challenges with meat. How can you not pay attention to that? (laughs) Can you share a little bit of what you shared uh, back about some of the challenges with nutritional studies and what you enlightened the audience with? I'd love to start off there.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, first of all, you know, the vegan diet, no researcher is under the assumption that we consumed a vegan diet during our um, time as hunter-gatherers. You know, I like to tell people and remind people that everybody listening to this podcast, if you're listening to this podcast, you are heir to the universe's most advanced supercomputer honed over millions of years of Darwinian evolution. And as hunter-gatherers, you know, one of the things that makes human beings so special is that we're highly adaptable. So it's not that we were strictly vegan. We actually ate from uh, the land. We consumed land animals. We consumed vegetables. We consumed tubers that were full of what's called resistant starch. Um, We ate fish. In fact, researchers believe that it was access to the nutrients contained in land animals and marine animals that helped catalyze the growth of our brains. So when it comes to a vegan diet, in the evolutionary sense, on the geological timescale, it's very much a fad. Um, and I, I think it's, it's something that we can discuss and debate openly because of the moral implications uh, in you know, agreement with the fact that today we have the moral uh, luxury of being able to vote with our wallets in accordance with the um, You know, with ethics and the way that we believe uh, that we're living um, ethically sound lifestyles. But when it comes to uh, research and how it, and diet and how it pertains to brain health. Um, I don't think that a vegan diet is optimal from the standpoint of brain health. And actually, there's not a lot of evidence when it comes to veganism uh, and risk for cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, and dementia. In fact, there's no good research that I could think of that has uh, both at the population level looked at vegan diets as it relates to risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease, but also um, when it comes to clinical trials, randomized control trials, which are the kinds of trials required to prove cause and effect, Um, Drew, the most robust evidence that we have so far that shows us that cognitive decline needn't be an inevitable aspect of aging is the finger study performed out of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. And in that dietary intervention, they took 1,200 adults, all of which, all of whom had at least one risk factor for uh, developing cognitive decline. And they put them On one of two uh, interventions, one was the Finnish standard of care, because the intervention was actually being done in Helsinki, Finland. I've actually visited the intervention site. And the other um, intervention involved a Mediterranean diet, which was rich in dark leafy greens, vegetables, extra virgin olive oil, but also fatty fish. So, you know, none of these dietary interventions that are really uh, showing us the power that our choices have over our cognitive function are vegan, um, that being said, I don't believe that a, a carnivore diet is ideal from a, from a health standpoint either. I think it's very important. And I know that Mark Hyman agrees with this to, you know, eat a plate that is a half, if not three quarters, which filled with vegetables, dark leafy greens, things like that. But then you really want to reach for, um, you know, animal protein. And I say protein, I wish there was a better way to, to describe, you know, foods like wild salmon, grass fed beef, things like that, because when we say protein, we kind of undermine all of the other nutrients that these foods contain. So like, you know, wild salmon is an incredible piece of uh, protein, but it also contains DHA fat, which is one of the most important structural building blocks of a healthy brain. It also has astaxanthin, which I'm a big fan of, which is a carotenoid that actually has been shown to protect your eye health and your brain health and your skin against aging. So these doctors at, at Revitalize, you know, they do they do good research, but... Um, I think that they've become a little bit jaded to uh, the benefits of a, of a healthy omnivorous diet because they, in fact, are vegan. So, I mean, there's a little bit of an inherent bias there. And the cohort that they study in their clinic are all Seventh-day Adventists from that, that region. So, I mean, that's a, uh, an entire dietary pattern and lifestyle that's associated with longevity. But it's hard to tease out from that observational perspective which aspects of the diet are Um, ideal and which aspects of of the diet could be improved.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the challenges for people who are listening, who hear so many different things and see movies on Netflix like What the Health, which I'd love to talk to you about in a second, um, they're just trying to figure it out. And there seems like so much extremism out there that there are people that literally say that if you eat meat, you're going to not get a good erection, right? right? That was like a big marketing kind of portion of like What the Health and uh, Joel Kahn, who's also a dear friend of mine, you know, vegan cardiologist, uh, you know, talking about that at Mind Body MindBodyGreen. Um, and, and that make is, meat is gonna make you sick, and it's gonna cause cancer, and it's co- gonna cause this. So just wanna dive into that topic a little bit further. So for the studies, because as the general population who's reading the headlines, you often see this study showed that meat yeah. did X, Y, and Z. What kind of studies are those typically? If they're not randomized controlled trials, what kind of studies are those? And um, what insight can that give us about how these studies are done?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think this is so key because I, I really believe when it comes to health literacy, we should all know how to interpret studies and what to sort of look out for. Um, because, you know, it's not one study that's going to guide your family's diet, for example. It shouldn't be. I mean, you really have to look at these studies in the context of the larger body of evidence and also recognize that not all studies are able to provide the same kinds of data. So, for example, when we look at large populations, take the United States, for example. When we look at people that live in the United States, I mean, most people in the U.S. are consuming very unhealthy meat that comes from factory farms. And these cows are treated horrendously, And their fat content, the types of fat contained in their meat, I mean, let's not even, you know, getting to the antibiotics that they're all fed and the hormones and things like that. Most of these cows are fed corn and worse. So they're fed corn, soy, and usually byproducts and candy. Skittles. Skittles, yeah. There was this article on on a popular news site where... Um, a truck overturned, it was carrying Skittles, and the, the officers were like, where was this truck, you know, in doing the report, where's the truck heading? It was going to a, fac- a local factory farm, where they were going to basically pump it into the cow's stomach, which they do through a hole, usually a port in, you know, one of its ruminant stomachs. Um, so that kind of meat is very unhealthy, and I think at the population level, meat, the term meat itself is fairly useless, because it's such a wide category, you know, um, And most people consuming meat in the United States are consuming it in the form of burgers that they buy from fast food restaurants that they're eating along with their French fries and their large soda. Supersized, right? Supersized that literally if that burger, you know, that burger could last forever. Exactly. Like a Twinkie. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Those burgers don't go bad. They're so full of preservatives and additives and things like that. Ammonia. Yeah, ammonia. So, I mean, at the population level, it's very difficult to study things like meat. On the other hand people at the population level that are eating more vegetables, I mean, it's pretty hard to screw up vegetables. So, you you know, this kind of research at the population level, it's probably going to be pretty clear that people who eat more vegetables have better health. People who eat more fruit, as opposed to processed foods that you buy in gas stations. If you're eating apples and bananas and fruit like that, you're probably going to have better health um, from the observational, you know, from from an outsider standpoint, because you're I mean, look, you're eating fruit, you're eating vegetables. Most people in this country, 60% of their calories are being derived from ultra-processed foods. So if you're eating more vegetables, more fruit, you're probably and you know, you usually don't buy vegetables and fruit from fast food restaurants. So you're probably going to have better health. But on the other hand, meat at the observational standpoint, it's very hard to study, right? But actually, um, randomized controlled trials that use meat, uh, what it seems to be what seems to be the case is that the health benefits of meat are very context-dependent. So if you're eating meat in the form of fast food burgers, it's not going to be very good for your health. But a recent trial actually found that people who consumed um, Mediterranean diets, this is a a pretty cool study actually, they took two groups of people and they put them both on Mediterranean-style diets. So Mediterranean-style diets include, uh, you know, the textbook definition of a Mediterranean-style diet, lots of vegetables, lots of extra virgin olive oil, few processed foods, um, lots of fruit, things like that. And... In each of those groups, so they were both eating this, this healthy Mediterranean diet, one of the groups they told to not consume very much meat. And the other group they told to consume a moderate to a high amount of meat, whatever, you would, you know, whatever meat you would want to consume, consume that level of meat in the context of that, of that Mediterranean dietary pattern. What they found was that the Mediterranean diet uh, group, they had an improvement in cardiovascular risk, risk factors. They were not eating a lot of meat, but they were eating this Mediterranean dietary pattern. So their blood pressure improved, their lipids improved, things like that. This was a crossover trial. And then um, when they uh, began eating more meat, what did they find? Actually, they found that their health improved just as much because it was the dietary pattern as a whole. It was the context in which that meat was being consumed. So it becomes really important, I think, you know we're not just eating single foods in isolation, right? We consume dietary patterns. And when you're eating meat, when you're eating kale, I mean, you know, all these things fit together in terms of an overall healthy dietary puzzle. And we have to be mindful of, of both, you know, of all of those components.
0: It's almost like we're we're focusing so much on meat because it's a very polarizing thing. And of course it's terrible in the traditional way that it's being, prepared and slaughtered in factory farms and slaughterhouses it's so polarizing the emphasis is on meat and then within that the emphasis is on the macronutrient of like protein yeah but there's so many other components that are there and at the end of the day if people choose to be vegan or vegetarian great but even more important than whether or not they eat meat is how the rest of their diet looks yeah so let's talk about some of those you know you have a new york times bestseller congratulations by the way Thank you. Um, called genius foods and you talk about foods that have such an important impact, that are well-researched. That's what I love about your work that you cite, is that you bring in a journalistic approach because your background is in journalism, and you talk about all the science that shows a strong case, and in some cases, other foods that we think are very healthy, that maybe the evidence is not there, or the evidence is counterintuitive, which I'm going to get back to in a second. So let's just go through a couple of these. Let's talk about three of these foods here that people would be surprised to know that this food is a brain health
1: food. Yeah, so first of all, I mean, with the book Genius Foods, I really wanted to strip away the BS, strip away the dogma, and really pick the foods that are packed with the kinds of nutrients that we know that your brain needs. Not only to survive the modern world, but to thrive. We wanna give it the the kinds of nutrients and the kinds of antioxidants that are really gonna help your brain fend off against the insults due to you know, toxin exposure. I mean, the modern world, we're confronted with more toxins than ever before in human history. You know, and I kind of use toxins as a, as a, as a, to cast a wide net. I mean, this could uh, describe anything from the industrial grain and seed oils that we overconsume consume today, the canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, all these oils are toxic. But then all the way down to the, ref- the refined processed carbohydrates that now make up 60% of our of the calories that we intake. So these foods that I highlight, if you can go to the supermarket and just buy them on loop, you're gonna be doing your brain a huge favor. So three of them, I would say, uh, you know, for one, definitely dark leafy greens. So my favorite, spinach, kale, and arugula. What I try to do every single day is I try to eat what I call a large fatty salad. And I'm usually focusing on those three greens um rush university research has found that people who do this consume a large bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that look up to 11 years younger on scans so i mean you want to have a more youthful brain eat dark leafy greens um i'm usually uh dousing those greens in extra virgin olive oil and i'll tell you why extra virgin olive oil i consider to be a genius food in its own right Um, because it's rich in, first of all, it's got a very favorable fatty acid profile. So in terms of the kind of oil that we want to consume liberally, we can look to many different types of studies to confirm that extra virgin olive oil is really beneficial. We can look at the population level, and we can see that people who tend to consume more extra virgin olive oil have better health. They've got better cardiovascular health. They've got better uh, brain health. They even can lose weight. We can look, taking it a step down, Um, to randomized control trials. You know, there was the PREDIMED trial. The PREDIMED trial was a very uh, large population long-term, about six years is what it spanned, uh, trial where they took um, groups of people and they put them on either low-fat diets or Mediterranean diets, which were already higher in fat, and they supplemented those two Mediterranean groups with either more nuts or more extra virgin olive oil. And they found that when consuming up to a liter per week, it actually improved the health outcomes of these people. The PrettyMed stu- study was actually recently um, reanalyzed uh, because there were some flaws in the randomization in the methodology. But even after the reanalysis of the trial, they found that the results were the same. And so very good evidence. You know. And a lot
0: of people were surprised because, as you mentioned, up to a liter a week.
1: Yes, that's a I lot. Mean, that's,
0: that's a large quantity.
1: Yeah, that's a large quantity. I mean, you know, we now know, thankfully, that fat doesn't make you fat, even though the two, unfortunately, have the same word. Um, but extra virgin olive oil, you know, it's the polyphenols in the oil, aside from the fatty acid uh, ratio of monounsaturated fat to uh, saturated fat. It's, it's very favorable from that standpoint, but it also contains plant compounds that are profoundly anti-inflammatory. So inflammation is the cornerstone of all modern disease, pretty much. And extra virgin olive oil is, is one of these foods that has a very strong anti-inflammatory effect in the body. And then we can look to Animal studies. So we can see from all these different um, types of studies that extra virgin olive oil is very beneficial. And when we throw it on that salad, it actually helps to make some of the most important uh, compounds in the greens more bioavailable. So it's a total synergy, Drew. It's like uh, one of these cases in biology where 1 plus 1 equals 5.
0: So when you're making your uh, fatty salad yeah. with the dark greens, um, do you just literally throw like build the salad for us, right? Because yeah. sometimes people who are new to this and they're just listening to the podcast, they're just imagine you dumping a bowl of arugula and then pouring olive oil on top. Is right. it like that? Do you stack it? Do you add other things to it? Uh, walk us through your process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could tell you about a salad that I had today. So I threw in equal parts kale, spinach, and arugula. So kale and spinach are great. Spinach and kale, both amazing sources of dietary fiber. Um, magnesium, which is critically important to help your body repair against DNA damage and create energy for you. Um, But arugula is special because it's one of the top dietary sources of plant nitrates, which are really important for healthy blood vessel function. So this is really important for, um, you know, sexual function. I mean, we all want that blood flow. You talked about that earlier a bit, you know, that actually uh, erectile dysfunction is a very early sign of cardiovascular disease. Um, and it's a sort of underrecognized sign. But also your brain relies on healthy blood flow as well. And one single high nitrate meal actually might uh, boost cognitive function. It boosts blood flow to the brain. And it works actually by providing the precursors to nitric oxide in your blood vessels, which helps to sort of act um, like a vasodilator. It helps to sort of like open up your capillaries and push new blood and nutrients to your brain. Um, so I take those dark leafy greens, I put them in a bowl. Um, today I threw in some raw beets, uh, which are also again, great source of nitrate helping with that blood flow. Um, some raw sunflower seeds, very delicious, um, for texture. I like to have fun with it. I throw in some bell peppers. Bell peppers are actually rich in, uh, luteolin, um, which has been shown to, to in animal models to prevent brain aging. Um, And then I'll throw in my extra virgin olive oil, maybe some protein like an egg or some, you know, chopped up uh, grilled chicken. Um, Extra virgin olive oil. I'm a big fan of uh, apple cider vinegar. So I'll use some apple cider vinegar. Salt, pepper. We know that pepper um, enhances the bioactivity of certain plant compounds like curcumin found in turmeric. So it uh, doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to... Um, you know, theorize that that's going to have a similar effect in the polyphenols found in dark leafy greens. So it's a little biohack that I use. I want to, you know, definitely always add that black pepper um, into my salad with some salt. And uh, I'm also a big fan of um, nutritional yeast. So I'll throw some nutritional yeast in there, which gives it sort of like a cheesy texture, even though it's a dairy-free product. It's actually a flavor enhancer. So it gives my salad like a really savory flavor. I think actually... Um, salt and nutritional yeast and these kinds of things that add sort of a savory bite to our foods are it's sort of like an, a very underappreciated benefit of adding more salt to your food. You know, I mean, if you got if you're listening and you have children and you're scratching your head trying to figure out how to get your kids to eat more vegetables, use salt liberally. You know, I mean, salt's not a bad guy. We sometimes forget that sodium is a nutrient and we need it for good health. So I'm making that salad. You know, acidic with the vinegar and salty and savory. And uh, there's a lot of layers. A lot of layers, yeah. And that's
0: what adds to the flavor, for the richness. And I'm sure every day it's not the same salad. You kind of vary this, vary that. Yeah, there are no rules.
1: There are no rules. Sometimes I'll, you know, I mean, in this salad that I had today, I used apple cider vinegar. Sometimes I'll use balsamic vinegar. Sometimes I'll leave out the nutritional yeast. Um, The right
0: combination of oils, a few key spices, is literally a game changer. Yeah. I mean, that's what. McDonald's and all these people know, except they use very unhealthy things to hijack our taste buds. They know that they can take iceberg lettuce, which has no flavor, and put the you know, most addictive, worst salad dressing on there and people will eat it up, Yeah, we can create our own version of that if we know the tools that are available.
1: You know, it's also, I think, really interesting to to keep in mind that some of the most healthy plant compounds have a bitter taste, and they're bitter because plants generate them as a means of discouraging smaller animals from consuming them, right? But actually, these plants have what's called a hormetic effect on our body, Um, so they're bitter, they're, I guess, mildly toxic at the cellular level, but we're so robust um, as a species that, you know, they don't actually have a negative effect on us. They, in essence, cause our bodies to upregulate the production of our own antioxidant compounds. And so it's one of the reasons why these plants are actually so good for us. All plant foods, from coffee to uh, cacao, all contain an abundance of these bitter polyphenol compounds. And some of the uh, plants that are that are most bitter are the most good for us for that reason, so look at uh, herbs. you know a lot of people kind of shy away from putting herbs into salads because um, of their strong flavor, but they 're actually some of the most concentrated sources of these polyphenols. so go to town, throw parsley uh, cilantro i mean there 's no you know these add a major health kick, and by throwing in the oil and the black pepper you 're really giving your body. Uh, a powerful health jolt when you add like herbs and other bitter compounds into your salad.
0: That's great. So we talked about dark green leafy vegetables and of course a little bit of olive oil and black pepper and a few other things inside of there. What's another genius food uh, that you can break down for us?
1: Yeah, well I would say um, eggs. I'm definitely a big fan of eggs although the speakers, the, uh, the, those doctors at revitalize would probably disagree with me But you know, we now know, Drew, and you, you know, Dr. Hyman has talked about this in his books that for the vast majority of people, dietary cholesterol has no uh, effect on risk for heart disease.
0: And break that down. Of course, Dr. Hyman's written a book called Eat That Get Thin. We've done some education on broken brain. But for people that are new or need a little, You know, revisit on that, yeah. um, help us understand that and like really break it down. So you're saying like the cholesterol that when we go into a doctor's office and they measure our cholesterol, yeah. you know, and we're often told like, oh, go eat an egg yolk omelet or stay away from this or stay away from grass-fed beef or these things. You're saying that those two things don't have a connection. So right. help us understand that. The vast
1: majority of, of cholesterol that you have in circulation in your body is actually produced by your liver. So your liver produces about four egg yolks worth of cholesterol every single day. Um, your brain produces cholesterol. It's called de novo cholesterol synthesis. Your brain is 25%. 25% of the cholesterol that is found in your body is located in your brain.
0: And cholesterol is a hormone that every one of our cells uses.
1: Exactly. Without cholesterol, we'd be dead. So let's start there. So, the, the, the whole notion that cholesterol is this demonic uh, dietary compound that somehow um, we should avoid is not true. I mean, we evolved consuming cholesterol. Um, there's no doubt about about that, and we now know that people that for the vast majority of people consuming dietary cholesterol doesn't have an impact on the circulating cholesterol that you have in your body. And I say the vast majority because you know in biology there are always exceptions. So one thing that I talk about in my book Genius Foods is the fact that there's no such thing as a one size fits all diet. I mean we could argue that there's a one size fits most diet, but every, you know, everybody's different at the end of the day. And so there are people that are hyper absorbers. And so I just want to be really clear that, um, you know, these are recommendations that are that for most of the people listening to this podcast, you know, feel free to eat the egg yolk. It's not going to have any impact on your circulating cholesterol. And in fact, egg yolks are nature's multivitamin. They're the benefits of consuming egg yolks by far for most people are going to outweigh any potential risk because egg yolks are packed with choline, they're packed with vitamin B12, they're packed with carotenoids that help protect your eyes and your brain against aging like lutein and zeaxanthin. Um, there's even an anti-inflammatory compound that was recently uh, identified called yokin in the yolks. So um, egg yolks have a myriad of uh, really healthy things. And you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, it totally makes sense because when an embryo is developing, the first structure to assemble is the nervous system, which includes the brain. So an egg yolk is literally postmarked by nature to contain all of the ingredients required to grow a healthy embryonic brain and nervous system.
0: You know, we talk about, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Hammonds at the Cleveland Clinic, one of the top, probably the top hospital in the world one of the things they talk about over there is that the average person that comes in with a cardiac event has a normal reference range of cholesterol, and so there's that component. The second component is that my background is South Asian, so a lot of people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, they're at one of the highest risks of heart disease here in the United States, and a decent percentage of the population tends to be vegetarian. And if they're not vegetarian, they don't eat red meat Hmm. because that's a big part of the Indian culture. And they have one of the highest risks of heart disease. You know, Stanford has uh, a hospital. At their hospital system, they have a South Asian uh, center for heart disease where they started looking into this stuff. And one of their big recommendations is that let's look at all the things that actually do increase your risk of a cardiac event. Having a high sugar diet, having a high triglycerides, having the size of your particle. Dr. Hammond often talks about the particle size of your cholesterol and how it's actually the vegetable oils and the sugar that give us these small golf ball size cholesterol particles that actually can accumulate and create plaque a lot of South Asians especially in the United States tend to be professionals many of them are doctors lawyers other things they don't have a very active lifestyle so there's so many factors that actually do play a role when it comes to Cardiovascular health, and then, of course, overall inflammation. Yeah. So it's almost like the whole model is kind of turning on its head the deeper we go and actually get evidence about totally. those factors.
1: And genes, you know, genes and your country of ancestry or your region of ancestry do play a, a large role in this. But what's very clear is that when people that are eating traditional diets move to the West, move to the United, to the United States, and adopt our standard American dietary pattern, disease soon follows. So it's very. Uh, You know, it's tricky. I mean, you know, we're not at the point where we can yet make super customized nutritional recommendations for all different genetic backgrounds. Um, So what I think is, uh, you know, at this point in our sort of understanding of the field of nutrigenomics, I think the best thing to do for anybody is to cut out those processed foods, eat a diet that's low in sugar, if not, you know, altogether uh, devoid of it when, you know, added into packaged processed foods. And get rid of these industrial oils. I mean, you know, the canola oil, the corn oil, the soybean oil. These are hidden in very inconspicuous places in the modern food supply. Everything from salad dressings to granola bars. And they're used to sort of coat dried fruit. Um, When you see roasted nuts, usually they're actually fried in these oils, unless they specifically say that they're dry roasted. And these oils scorch the inner linings of your blood vessels. They promote inflammation. um, So they're not doing anybody any good, really. I mean, I was actually, you know, speaking of uh, traditional Indian cooking, in India, they use a lot of ghee, right? Yeah. So (laughs) I'm actually a big fan of Indian food, and I get Indian food in New York City uh, quite frequently. Um, There's a local uh, restaurant in my neighborhood that makes really good food. Um, But I noticed at at a certain point over the past couple of years that it was very oily. And I asked them, I kind of assumed that they were cooking in ghee, but I asked them what they were actually cooking that Indian food in, and it's all soybean oil because it's dirt cheap. So for a restaurant that's looking to cut costs wherever possible, especially if being able to do so is invisible to the consumer, they're going to use these cheap vegetable oils.
0: And in India, there's been a campaign to get people to move away from ghee and to move to vegetable oils. It's by all the vegetable oil companies. Right because they say it's better for heart health. They even have little heart health logos right. on it. You have the American Heart Association endorsing vegetable oils and telling us to move away from butter and other things like that. Yeah. So just going back to that, you know, we talked about two foods that are good for brain health. Let's take this third one and this category of vegetable oils and break it down a little bit further. Cause this is, I think something that leaves people confused and uh, needs a little bit more attention. Yeah. So you talk about how great olive oil is in the study. And sometimes people hear like corn oil or they hear soybean oil What's the difference between an oil like olive oil that's really great for you and something like corn oil or canola oil or rapeseed oil uh, or soybean oil that are not that great for
1: you? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing you've got to realize is that nature doesn't create bad fats. Humans do. So to make canola oil, to make corn oil, Uh, Grapeseed oil, any of these oils requires about 10 industrial steps that damage the oil. Uh, But also, there's one step that they all undergo called deodorization. This process actually makes the oils tasteless and odorless. And manufacturers love this, okay? Because it allows them to use these oils in every crevice of the modern food supply. How is it that one oil... Is going to work in a granola bar, in a salad dressing, in a pasta dish, used to fry chicken in. It's because these oils are basically uh, um, it processed to the point where they become so bland and odorless uh, that they they basically have no taste and no. And manufacturers again, they love it. It's cheap. The problem is that that process of deodorization actually creates trans fats. So any of these oils that you consume are going to contain up to 5% trans fat. Now, trans fats are man-made fats, and there is no safe level of trans fat consumption. I'll say it again. There's no safe level of trans fat consumption. I mean, the consumption of them is associated with an increased risk of early death by any cause, okay? And also worse memory function in people that are young and healthy. So if you're young and healthy and you're wanting your uh, memory to work better, I mean, right off the bat, cut these oils out of your diet. To make extra virgin olive oil, on the other hand, how would you guess you make it? Well, it's very simple. Humans have been making extra virgin olive oil for thousands of years because all you do to make it is you crush olives. And the same thing, for example, with coconut oil. You know, coconut oil, you crush the meat of a coconut and you get coconut oil. To make avocado oil, you squeeze an avocado and you get avocado oil. Um, These grain and seed oils that are sold in our supermarkets and that, you know, have ads behind them on TV... uh, are some of the most uh, noxious ingredients in the modern food supply
0: and and they're in everything once you start looking at it, even a lot of the health foods that you buy at whole foods or other places you see a lot of these great seen oils even on things that are labeled organic or gluten-free it's almost like you have to really work hard to remove them out of your diet and pay attention because the level that they contribute to inflammation the overall in the body is, is staggering, but yeah. there's not a lot of attention that's been placed on it yeah. um, until more recently.
1: Well, look, I mean, so these oils, they, they drive inflammation. They're predominantly infl- pro-inflammatory omega-6 fats, which are essential for life, but um, you know we overconsume them today. And they, what they do is they provide the raw materials to our body's inflammation pathways. So you don't want to overconsume omega-6 fats. They're damaged. They, con- they contain these trans fats. So they drive inflammation. Okay. But what we've been told to, you know, we've been told to use them instead of saturated fats, like the ghee that we were talking about earlier, right? So isn't it ironic that an, an Indian person, for example, consuming ghee, you know, cooking all their food in ghee in India, which is supposedly the dangerous fat because it's full of, you know, cholesterol and saturated fat, gives that up, moves to the United States, consumes more of these oils, you know, in the U.S., these grain and seed oils, and actually has an increased risk of heart disease, right? It's
0: nuts. It's nuts. And really, you know, this is the probably one of the best times in the history of humanity. I mean, we did a lot of these things inherently. Obviously, people weren't studying nutrition. Maybe some people were, but very few people. They just ate what traditionally we ate. And there was a deeper connection with the food. There wasn't so much processed food and other things like that. So people passed down from generations that this is healthy, this will keep you fit, this will do this. We lost that through the modernization, and now we're rediscovering it yeah. through conversations like this.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and we didn't even talk about this at the, at the beginning of the show, but I mean like my, the, 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 major reason, you know, the impetus for me to really engage with nutrition and to write the book, Genius Foods comes from the fact that my mom has dementia. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So my, my mother has uh, a rare form of dementia and it's been, and continues to be the most heartbreaking thing in my life. And I would do anything to get my mom back into normal health and, and really, you know, this, this investigation is something that is going to continue for the rest of my life, you know, as I, you know, sort of peel back the layers and try to look at what kind of diet and lifestyle, what, and what were, the, what were the contributing factors that led to my mom developing this condition and how I might prevent that from happening to me, right? I grew up consuming these kinds of oils. My mom, the diet that I, you know, recall my mom consuming, you know, I know that in my house growing up, we had margarine made of these extremely unhealthy oils. My mom was not, she'd never consumed red meat. She only ate like, you know, the breast meat of chicken or turkey occasionally to get the protein, but abstained from red meat. She was not a believer in organic, even though we are from New York City and my mom had access to healthy food. Um, She ate lots and lots of wheat and bread products because, you know, as a New York Jew, that's what you did, you know, you ate bagels and you ate matzah and you ate all this stuff you know, none of which contain cholesterol and saturated fat. So how could they be anything but healthy, right? So my mom, you know, we ate all of that stuff growing up. And then we always had corn oil by the stove, which is what we used to fry foods in, you know, chicken cutlets and things like that made in breaded wheat flour, fried in saturated fat and cholesterol-free corn oil that always sat in the warm environment of the kitchen in a clear plastic tub. Um, and those are the kinds of foods that we ate. But here's the thing, that dietary pattern was the ideal diet for somebody trying to be healthy in the 80s and 90s because that's what we were told to eat. You know, we were told to avoid cholesterol and avoid saturated fat. Now, it would be impossible for me to pick apart any one of those variables or to ascribe you know, causality to any one of those variables. I'll never truly know what it was that led to my mom developing dementia. But I can look back and I could say, well, you know, in this sort of N of 1 study, my mom was consuming all of these, these products. My mom had a fear of saturated fat and cholesterol, probably stemming from the fact that she had, uh, in her family tree, heart disease. Um, and so she was particularly attuned to this messaging surrounding cholesterol. And she ate a diet that, uh, you, know, was, you know, she didn't eat organic produce. Um, I don't recall her eating wild fish or any of that. You know, I mean, I think she just bought, you know, whatever salmon was cheapest or on sale at the supermarket. Um, and never any red meat. So so for me, really, when I started to uh, investigate the kinds of foods that one should be eating for optimal brain health, I put everything on the table. And, you know, my bias coming from that background was like I wasn't quite sure whether or not red meat was good for me. Because I grew up not really thinking that it was all that good because of my mom. But when she got sick, I mean, I, yeah, I left no stone unturned. And so, you know, when people want to uh, debate about any of these topics, you know, I'm I'm happy to, I'm not coming at it from a place of dogma. I'm coming at it from a place of true curiosity, open-mindedness. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, modern food constructs to me are going to be guilty until proven innocent as opposed to innocent until proven guilty You know, veganism, which I love vegans. I've got many friends that are vegans. I have no, I don't judge anybody who chooses that lifestyle. Um, But that is a fairly modern construct. And so to me, these concepts are going to be what I call guilty until proven innocent.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And so, you know, really interesting background that you've had. You know, you were in journalism, you were working at Current TV, and then you saw your mom uh, you know people can watch the trailer the movie is now yet. when when does your movie come out yeah
1: we're uh we're looking to finish it up this year which is which is my hope um it's called breadhead
0: i've seen it and yeah. i think it's amazing and it's really great work i think there's a couple things that are really inspiring about the movie and you putting it together first it shows the care and love that you have for your mom which so many people listening to this podcast you know our parents have given us everything and especially as they get older and as we get older we want to take care of them we want to look after them and uh, we don't want them to end up in a nursing home and you know i really think that dementia And then alzheimer's are like two of the scary you know two of the scariest diseases that are out there at least with cancer you're mostly still who you are and you're going through this very difficult thing but the scariest part about dementia when i we talked to people when we did our broken brain series is that you literally do not even know who you are you know you forget things you are maybe playing a loop from previous years and it's a very scary you know disease that and i think uh what are the stats right now in terms of dementia and how many people will be
1: yeah, I mean, today five million people in the in the U.S. have uh, Alzheimer's disease, which is just one form of dementia. I mean, it's the most common form of it. But um, you know, there are about two million people in the U.S. that have Parkinson's disease. There's about one million people in the U.S. that have Lewy body dementia. Um, you know, it's uh, our brains really are under attack. And when you look at the statistics, if you make it to the age of eighty five, you have a fifty percent chance of being diagnosed with. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, which is just a shocking statistic in and of itself, but we have enough insight today where we don't have to sit on our hands. I mean, we can look at risk factors um, that are modifiable, and we can take steps there. We can eat foods that help give our brains the tools to um, shield itself against aging, Um, and I don't think that, you know, we need to wait for a scientific consensus before we take steps in our lives that are uh, safe, that are vetted by you know, evolutionary theory that pass a test of simple logic. Um,
0: Because, you know, that that brings up something interesting. I'm sure when you first got started, again, having a journalism background, you just wanted to ask and discover and see what's out there. One of the things that we get a lot of reader feedback and listener feedback, and they say, you know, I took some of these concepts that I learned from your podcast and from the Broken Brain series, and I went to talk to my doctor about it. And the common response, and I know this response because maybe half of my family members are doctors, is... There's no evidence yeah. that's out there to yeah. support this idea. And often that statement is coming from, a, of course, well-meaning doctors, researchers who just actually haven't looked. They weren't trained. So when you were putting this documentary together and you were slowly starting to understand the differences in these food choices and these lifestyle choices that could increase the risk of dementia in somebody, and in your mom's case, did you have like a moment where you were like, oh, like the medical... maybe. Just because you're a doctor or a researcher, you actually may have no clue about this thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, most doctors are not experts when it comes to nutrition. They get, at most, an afternoon of training when it comes to nutrition. Uh, research, you know, medical school surveys have found that doctors are undertrained when it comes to exercise, too. Which, really, to me, says something about, um, you know the ability of doctors to really provide what we call health care. You know, I think at the end of the day, doctors are trained to provide sick care in this country. But healthcare, I think it's important to remember, happens where you are. Healthcare happens in your kitchen, in your gym, when you're struggling to get to the gym, you gotta remind yourself that you're going to the gym for healthcare. When you're pushing your shopping cart through the supermarket, that's healthcare. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean I, I completely understand, you know, some of these doctors they get so abused <laughs> honestly in medical school that they're trained really to um, be skeptics which I think is important but they get it's it's so difficult for most of them that they actually become cynics and I think that's where they go wrong because you know being being a skeptic in science is very important right you always want to ask questions and, and and maintain that sort of crit- critical lens but Becoming a cynic is what happens, I think, too often. And that's when uh, these doctors really become essentially down on what they're not up on. Whereas, I think, if you're listening to this and you happen to be a healthcare practitioner, I think you've got to be open-minded because this science is evolving rapidly. I mean, 90% of what we know about Alzheimer's disease has been discovered only in the past 15 years. So, I mean, this is like a rapidly evolving field of science. And if you take an, an, an older person who went to medical school 20 years ago, I mean, there's a good chance that they know nothing about nutrition, and especially when it comes to the brain.
0: Yeah, there's so many factors on that that are really interesting to talk about. Just for a second here is that it's almost like you got to step into the role of like, you are the CEO of your health. Yeah. And in the case of you working with your mom, it's like you guys are both like co-CEOs of this company, which is your mom's health and you're trying to find the right experts and people to bring on to staff, and yeah. you listen to them, and you listen to everybody, and then you make a decision. You know, Doctors have so many crazy expectations that are placed on them, limited time, all the pressures from insurances, we just expect so much from yeah. them. Um, and really, it's unfair, You know, I really feel for them. But interesting thing is for all the doctors that have been on this podcast, Broken Brain, every single one of them has had a personal health crisis that kind of blew their mind open and had them ask, well, maybe i don 't know about this, or is there another answer that 's yeah. out for me? They became a patient. Um, I want to go back to the concept of uh, food a little bit and take it full circle because there 's so much evidence that 's come out you know you 're talking about your mom and uh, and dementia, and one of the things that 's really come out in terms of foods that has so many challenges when it comes to brain health is sugar. Can we talk a little bit about sugar and help people understand a little bit of like? What's the evidence that's out there when it comes to sugar and its role with brain health?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, sugar, you know, it's something that we are consuming uh, so much of today in the form of added sugar, the the high fructose corn syrup, the syrups. Um, And what sugar does is when we consume it, first of all, you know, your entire blood volume at any given moment uh, is carrying about one teaspoon of sugar. Around And that's, you know, in somebody with a, a normal healthy blood sugar. Um, the minute we consume a, a soda or a glass of orange juice or a blueberry muffin, we're basically um, funneling six, seven, eight teaspoons of sugar into that system. And the body likes what's called homeostasis, right? Like it works very hard to keep your temperature hovering at around 98.6. It also tries, I would say, equally hard to keep your blood sugar in that sort of one teaspoon zone, So when we eat foods that are really high in added sugar, our pancreas comes to the rescue to play cleanup. And it does that by secreting a hormone called insulin into uh, our bloodstream. And what insulin does is it basically opens the door so that that circulating sugar can then enter the cells of the liver, muscle, and fat tissue. The problem is the pancreas isn't an instrument of precision. It's more like a blunt tool. So oftentimes when we consume a high-carb meal, the pancreas is going to over-respond and secrete more insulin than required to clean up the garbage from your circulation. So what that actually ends up doing is it sends your blood sugar to the floor. And so for somebody who's stuck on this high-carb diet, that's a very... um, irritable scenario, we experience what many people call hanger, right? That, uh, confluence of being sort of hungry and angry at the same time, because we we're looking for that next sort of sugar fix. And that not only keeps you hooked on this roller coaster where we're constantly reaching for sugary high carbohydrate foods, right? Um, I mean that drives, uh, weight gain, it drives inflammation. Um, but you know, by keeping levels of insulin chronically elevated throughout the day, well, that actually, what that's called is hyperinsulinemia. And that might actually precede a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes by a decade. So what you're doing is you're not only setting the stage for type 2 diabetes, but 40% of Alzheimer's cases might be owed to chronically elevated insulin, according to an article published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, which is one of the most prestigious dementia journals. So when it comes to the brain... Uh, sugar is inherently damaging. So sugar, like oxygen, actually, you know, it's one of these things in biology where we need a little bit to live, right? Like oxygen, without oxygen, we die. Um, but if you slice an apple open, you leave it on the counter, it oxidizes, it ages at an accelerated pace. So oxygen, we need it. Um, but it also, you know, our uh, ability to use oxygen comes at a, at, a, at a cost. Well, same with glucose, we need a certain amount of glucose, um, our brain's, you know, 40% of our brain's energy requirements has to be glucose, right? But glucose also is damaging once it's in our bodies. It's sort of like when you get syrup on your fingers with the difference that once it's in our bodies and it sticks to various proteins and fats, it can't be washed off. And so that damages our proteins and, you know, we're made of protein, Drew. Uh, the other thing, so that's sugar, but insulin Insulin is problematic because insulin interferes with many of the body's housekeeping services. So when we talk about you know, how incredible it is that our bodies can actually repair against the damage wrought by inflammation, we actually, our bodies work best in repair mode when we're in a low insulin state. So by keep, keeping insulin chronically elevated throughout the day, by eating these carbohydrates, these grains, these starches, we're actually impeding our body's ability to perform some of its custodial functions. One of these, for example, is autophagy, which is sort of like when uh, our cells clean house and, and grind up old, worn-out, dysfunctional proteins and reassemble them and use them elsewhere in the body. So what I recommend is a diet that is low in starch and sugar, you know, that maybe uses grains sparingly, you know, like I'm not going to say that uh, grains are, the you know, like brown rice, for example, or quinoa are the source of our problems, but... We overconsume these kinds of foods. And so, and we also, um, in tandem with our overconsumption of those foods, we know that 90% of Americans are deficient in at least one essential nutrient. So I like to push the grains aside or at least, you know, kind of relegate them to cameo roles in my diet as opposed to starring roles. And uh, eat more vegetables, dark leafy greens, you know, I'm into squash. You know, zucchini's amazing. I'll make some butternut squash, things like that. Um, again, the the huge salad that I eat every single day. Love cruciferous vegetables like Brussels sprouts, broccoli, stuff like that. I'm really uh, opting for those foods um, on my plate, and not not the grains.
0: Max, what I love about your story is that you know you started off through this inspiration coming from your mom to want to help her and figure out answers. And in that process, I'm sure there was a shift for you where you decided, like, I'm not just documenting this anymore, but I need to be an advocate for this. Yeah. Because if I didn't know about this and I'm pretty smart, you know, a ton of other people don't know about it too. Yeah. And what's inspiring about that is that there's a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, and most people are not practitioners. They don't have a background in medicine. They're not uh, somebody who works with patients. They're not a doctor nurse. Some people are health coaches. But people who get started or get inspired by a series like Broken Brain or some other health book out there, they're always looking for, how can I make an impact in this industry? Yeah, Did you ever feel a sense of imposter syndrome coming in and feeling like there's all these people with way more credentials than I have and researchers and PhDs, and here I am, I'm talking about what to eat and what the research says and making it digestible. Um, Was there ever part of you that felt like, who am I to do this?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, if you're listening to this podcast, you absolutely can pay it forward and affect health on a pretty big scale by sharing this podcast. So the first thing you should do, share this podcast, get your friends to listen to it, send it to your family members, because honestly, you're going to create a domino effect or a butterfly effect, and you're going to affect the health of your neighbors in a major way. And, you know, we're small drops in an endless ocean, but what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? That's one of my favorite quotes by an author named David Mitchell, but I think it's so profoundly true. Um, when I first began this journey, you know, I, I realized that, you know, some of the some of the people that I had really relied on to help me in that dark period of coming to terms with the fact that my mom had dementia um, kind of left me hanging. You know, I realized that the food industry, the government, uh were complicit in the fact that my mom and my family were fed this horrendous nutritional information for decades. Um, The doctors that I was going to with my mom, you know, many of them uh, left us in the lurch. Not once was diet or exercise ever brought up. So, you know, when I started having these revelations, just how powerful food is, how important prevention is, because, you know, dementia often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom. um, I didn't want to kick the can back to the credentialed people that led us into the situation to begin with. I felt a strong sense of, you know, if you're the only person that can do something, then you have to do it. And I knew that I had this burning passion, this story because of my mom, um, that I was going to be endlessly motivated that, uh, you know, any setback along my journey to communicating this idea, creating my documentary, writing this book, you know, wasn't really going to be about me. You know, it was going to be about um, the larger idea. You know, I have a podcast uh, called The Genius Life, and one of the um, people that I interviewed on it, she's an innovation expert, but she wrote a book about um, all of the, the sort of world changing people and how they really got their ideas uh, manifest, including Thomas Edison, uh, Albert Einstein, people like that. And one of the common threads that unite people that really cause these tectonic shifts in the way that we live our lives is that they have what's called an idealized goal. Their goal is larger than them. It's sort of like, you know, uh, somebody on a, on, a, on a mission to go and spread the gospel of whatever religion they believe. You know, they are driven by something that's larger than them. So for me, when I was starting to learn all of these uh, facts and truths about nutrition, I mean, this was an idea that was bigger than me. So I knew that Um, you know, it propelled me forward and I just really dedicated myself to learning as much as I possibly could to acknowledging, um, the limitations of my knowledge. Uh, you know, recognizing where I, you know, needed to go further and dig deeper and reach out to experts, I could sort of fill in my own knowledge gaps. Because that's one thing that many, many credentialed people actually don't do is they don't acknowledge the fact that they don't know everything. I think the truly wise people realize how little it is that that we know about anything, right? So I came at it from a place of curiosity, just wanting to know as much as I possibly could, Um, not putting any sort of limits on myself, but really at the end of the day, feeling um, sort of entitled to answers and not being afraid to ask questions and to start putting this information out there, and you know, I mean, it's worked at this point. I've I've gal- galvanized a bit of a tribe, and it's just a continual journey for me. You know, I learn a lot from you. I'm just like I learn a lot from Dr. Hyman. I learn anybody who's uh, who is able to offer a crumb on my scavenger hunt for truth. I'm all ears. I
0: think the advantage that uh, people like yourself and myself have as is- lay people yeah. right not a physician not a practitioner is that we're always thinking about how do you make things easy and simple and clear yeah because sometimes you can be so in the knowledge as a researcher as a physician you just think everybody already knows about this yeah. you use a word like inflammation but you then you don't describe it you don't help people understand it you don't right. give an analogy and the world actually needs more people like that in some capacity to create new product companies yeah. that make it easier to eat this way to create more podcasts to host presentations, but to do it in a way with humility. You know, one thing that I've always appreciated about you, I've seen you on probably like maybe 10 panels now, Um, almost every time I've seen it as like multiple question answer, at some point in time during the panel, you say, I don't know about this. Yeah. I don't know about this and it's something to look into or the research is inconclusive at least from what i've seen and if anybody else out there has seen something let me know so it sort of builds this confidence which is that you talk about what you know you don't talk about what you don't you acknowledge it and you're just trying to present the information that you're gathering together for people and i think for anybody listening here who is thinking about how can they get involved in this space you can just start with those same principles
1: exactly yeah i mean i think at the end of the day i was able to sort of leverage my position as an outsider to see the forest for the trees you know too frequently doctors as we talked about you know they're under trained when it comes to nutrition Um, and most PhDs are really trained to focus on their little you know areas uh, that they're that they're studying so for me to sort of come in and connect the dots it's been you know an incredible journey and um, how refreshing would it be if the next time you're asking your doctor about uh, nutrition they were like You know I don't know I was under trained about this topic go out and do the research and maybe print it out and bring it to me and I'll help you kind of sift through it when was the last time you heard that in a doctor's office probably never right I think too frequently people that are credentialed in these positions um don't acknowledge the fact that 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 they don't know every everything and it leaves us in a state of like all right well what do I do now I mean for me I think what was different about my journey is that I was like you know what I'm just gonna like stand up and do the research myself.
0: So talking about that on the internet, you know, there's so many different websites. There's so much propaganda on all ends, just like the food companies have propaganda. There are websites in the health world that have propaganda that want to sensationalize the research that want to, uh, and you know, you know how it is on Facebook. You have a Facebook account. Many people reading will read the title and if it aligns with our worldview, we'll hit share before even we've read the article. Yeah. And there's even fewer people that actually go over to the study that's being referenced and see what is it that they're being talked about. So what are your trusted resources? What are things that you go to? And you know, obviously I wanna be kind in discussing it, but what are things that you stay away from yeah. when it comes to looking at health information?
1: I mean, look, when, I, when I'm looking for health information, I go to PubMed, which is sort of a catalog of all of the peer-reviewed research that's out there. Um, and you, you'd be surprised how much you can sort of understand uh, in terms of you know published scientific articles. I mean, you're not going to be able to understand everything. But I do think that scientific literacy is really important. I think that we should all know how, at least on a, on a cursory scale, look at a research paper, understand the structure of it, and um, know how to get what we want there. When we go to publications, traditional media, blogs on the internet—I mean, most blogs and and traditional sites do a terrible job of um, conveying scientific research. I get uh, sent links all the time from various like plant-based uh, publications, um, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with using those sites as a starting place. Uh, but people send them to me these links as if they are scientific research, but those are those links are not scientific research. They're using science, they're sort of curating scientific research in a um, very sort of deliberate way to um, put forth uh, a point of view. And, you know, scientific research is meant to be unemotional, not have a point of view. It's meant to be free of bias. And if there is a a potential source of bias, these papers have to disclose what that potential source of bias is going to be, whether it's funded by the egg industry or the beef industry or the broccoli industry. Um, for example, so I like to, um, yeah, really go to PubMed personally. And,
0: uh, are there any other peers in this industry that you will look to? Cause you know that the way that they cover information for me, you know, Chris Kresser is really great. Yeah. Uh, who is a practitioner that's based in uh, Northern California, runs the California Center for Functional Medicine. Love his approach, very grounded, always Pulling up things and showing kind of both sides of the story and letting the reader make up their mind. Yes, are there other people that you look up to uh, for
1: information? I've seen Chris's site. Yeah, I would say that Chris Kresser has a good site. I like um, it's. It it used to be called Authority Nutrition. Now it's called Healthline. I think I like Healthline as a site. Um, I like uh, you know David Perlmutter. I think does a really good job. His his videos and and blogs are great. Mark obviously does a great job. what else is out there? Yeah, uh,
0: I also really like Dr. David Ludwig, who's actually running a lot of yeah. his studies at Harvard, uh, in his position, and is running studies and talk, talking about the damaging effects of sugar, and is actually running, you know, yeah. trials and other things like that, and seeing. He's uh, awesome. He's, he's a great awesome. Resource.
1: Yeah, he's awesome. I mean, he publishes on Medium, so I mean, you'll find some good stuff there. Um, Jason Fong is a great, you know, expert in fasting. I like, I follow a lot of PhDs. Like I just did a podcast interview on on my show with, uh, Sachin Panda, who I follow on, um, Twitter. He's uh, one of the world's leading researchers in circadian biology. Um, I also, you know, I mean, there, there's a handful of really great books out there as well. I mean, uh, genius foods, <clears throat> not no, no bias at all, but I, I highly recommend picking that up. Um, yeah, Mark has written some great books, uh, those yeah. are all great. Yeah.
0: Um, big picture question: If you could play a role in in food policy and influence policy a little bit, um, what's one area that you would focus on? You know, if you could pick one sort of agenda and have the ear of uh, some of the change makers that relate to policy on a national scale, is there something that you'd focus on that you think that would have uh, a major impact in how the health shows up?
1: Yeah, I would. Um... Man, that's a good question. I don't think that government should make nutritional recommendations. It's just got its hand in too many pies and there's too much outside influence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the whole like my plate, formerly the the food pyramid, I think that these do way more harm than good. Um, they're not evidence based. We know that. I also don't like, uh, you know, when food manufacturers put like heart healthy logos and things like that on what are basically processed foods, junk foods. Um, I don't know if this is still the case, but I heard once, you know, like you were able to put a red heart healthy logo on a box of Cheerios, but you couldn't put it on an avocado because the avocado had, you know, had too much fat in it or something like that. So... Um, yeah, so I think you know when when government uh, meddles in nutrition, I just don't think it's I don't think it's wise. Um,
0: so maybe some sort of independent, completely free from influence yeah. scientific board or a collection of you know universities. Well, yeah,
1: something, something <laughs> like that. But it's also nutrition research is hard. I mean, even within the nutrition community, you know that there's fighting all the time. You know, is low fat better? Is low carb better? I mean, you know, I happen to believe low carb is better. Um, than low-fat. Some would argue that, uh, you know, if you're eating a a low-fat diet like some people do in some of the world's blue zones, that you could be in perfectly good health there too. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think that you can probably handle a, you know, a low-fat, processed, food-free variant of that diet pretty well. And I think you can probably handle a low-carb diet very well. What we do know is that when people embrace the standard American diet, which is high in fat and carbs, that disease, you know, soon trails not so far behind.
0: Yeah, and we also know all these other factors, sleep, community, friendship, connection, all play a major role. You know, I'm big into friendship, I talk a lot about it on my Instagram, and, uh, and I'd love to hear from you, you know, when you think about community, how important is community with your health, and how important was community with, you know, you working on your, your, your mom's health and supporting her? What role did it play, uh, either towards the positive or the negative?
1: Community, I mean, it's so important. I mean, first of all, the we, we're each able to galvanize a community that transcends time and space on social media today, which I think is really amazing. And it's a way to sort of, um, you know, keep us accountable to our health goals and to surround ourselves with like-minded, positive people. You know, if you live in a small town and everybody there is eating junk food and you want to... Stand apart and be healthy and carve out a different future for yourself and you're not getting the support that you need from that town. I mean, technology is an amazing way of finding that support in a way that transcends geography. Um, So I think like it's incredibly important. I mean, there's this crazy statistic. I know Mark cites it sometimes, but you're at higher risk of becoming obese if your friend is obese than if your family member is obese. Basically showing us that in a way obesity is a communicable disease, right? Because we're more influenced in terms of the kinds of foods that we're eating by the people that we hang out with the most. Um, And that trumps genetics, which we tend to like to blame when it comes to health. But we now know that genes aren't destiny thanks to uh, this, you know, the burgeoning field of epigenetics. So I think community plays a huge role. Um, And, uh, you know, I think... It's the kind of thing where we really need to be deliberate um, with the kinds of people that we spend time with. If you're spending time with people that do not support you on your health journey, I think you need to find new friends, to be totally honest.
0: And social media, which often gets a bad rap, can be a tool to find people in your local area, searching hashtags, searching other components. If you don't have people around you, I think the key is to get online, to get offline, yeah. to go do dinners, to go do meetups, yeah. to go to a conference with somebody. Yeah. You know, we recently just hosted the Feel Good Summit. So many individuals came out to that event by themselves yeah. and made a new friend. So go hang out where other people are. Um, Max, there was one other thing that you talked about this weekend that i think that also might be a little bit of a surprise to people you kind of helped us look at coconut oil in a little bit of a different way coconut oil which is this product that so many people is amazing and they rub it into everything Mm -hmm. to make it better they put it into all the foods but you sort of feel like you're not sure about the usage of how much coconut oil we have in our diet
1: yeah i'm not a big fan of lots of added saturated fat so i think now that the pendulum has swung in the direction where we're thankfully embracing whole food sources of natural nature-made fats. Um, you know, I think eating coconut is great, but eating, uh, you know, an excessive amount of added saturated... First of all, I'm not, I'm not... Other than extra virgin olive oil, which I think has a strong body of evidence to really support this, I'm not a big fan of adding lots of extra oils uh, in general to my diet. Um, but especially when it comes to saturated fat, I think that, you know there are people that have different genes that uh, basically make them metabolize saturated fat a little bit differently. Um, so a lot of people these days are putting coconut oil in their smoothies and things like that. I uh, actually, I'm not a, a big fan of it um, in, that, in that context. I do think that um, a fraction of coconut oil, MCT oil, can potentially be beneficial for people with cognitive impairment and potentially dementia because it converts via the liver into a fuel source that the brain will happily use called ketones. Um so I think that is a good application for coconut oil but specifically more so uh MCT oil or medium chain triglyceride um oil. But coconut oil itself, you know, I think um yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan necessarily of it because you know, we were talking about cholesterol a little bit before and I think that Thankfully, you know, for people in this community and if you've listened to this podcast, you know that uh, dietary, the link between cholesterol and heart disease um, is not necessarily a causal one. But that being said, saturated fat does still have a specific uh, way in which it affects the body. If you're eating not a lot of vegetables, if you're eating a lot of starch and grains and you're adding coconut oil into that mix, well, then suddenly you've got a diet that's high in starch, which breaks down into your body uh, and becomes sugar and saturated fat and literally starch and saturated fat typify um, the standard American diet, essentially. So I mean, whether the saturated fat that you're eating looks like coconut oil or butter, or you're eating lots of fast food um, and then consuming lots of starch and sugar on top of that, biologically, it doesn't make a huge difference. And saturated fat might also affect the way that our livers recycle cholesterol. So that's a really, without getting into the weeds, You know, our livers play hundreds of very important roles in the body. One of the roles that they play is recycling uh, LDL particles and cholesterol, lipoproteins, things like that. And saturated fat might have an effect on the way uh, a significant portion of the population metabolize um, these lipids in our body. And so I just think, you know, the evidence, the jury is still out. Um, there's no good evidence that consuming lots and lots of coconut oil is of any benefit to the brain. On the other hand, there is that evidence for extra virgin olive oil. So I like to sort of hedge my bets, you know, and, um, if I'm going to use an oil in my food and my cooking, um, I'm going to go for extra virgin olive oil with the exception of very high heat cooking. And then maybe I'll use the coconut oil or butter or ghee.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that breakdown. We're going to conclude on something, uh, three tips that have nothing to do with food that Mm -hmm. are beneficial to brain health that you know, we often focus on food, and people think that food is the big component. But there's so many other factors that relate to brain health. So just two or three quick tips that you might have for our community yeah. that uh, play a significant role in the health of our brains.
1: I would say optimize your sleep. Um, instead of just saying sleep more, I think uh, sleep hygiene is really important. You want to keep your room dark and cool. Um, some people don't like air conditioning. Um you know it can be expensive, but I think you know our bodies seem to like to sleep in cooler states. Our body temperature actually drops when we sleep, um, and you want to also keep your room dark. There's been some interesting research where even dim light uh, while we sleep is able to sort of somehow be perceived and affect cognitive function the next day. So you really want to make sure that your room uh, stays dark. The second tip I would say, you know, exercise. When we move a little bit, uh, our bodies push new blood to the brain, which, you know, brings with it um, fuel and nutrients and things like that. So imbue your day with movement, take the stairs whenever you can. Um, Don't be sitting or standing for that matter in any one position for too long. You always want to be moving. Um, There are fluids in your body that don't have their own heart and rely on our movement to be flushed around. So, you know, walk wherever you can move stretch in between writing sessions what have you and then the third tip i would say you know practice gratitude be kind to one another call the people that you love tell them how much you love them um because you never know you know i mean i 10 years ago if i would have known that uh that my mom was going to have developed dementia you know i I might have spent more time in new york city at that point with her looking at her diet getting that quality time in. I still spend a lot of time with my mom, but you know, uh, dementia is a beast and, um, you know, we're not promised the future. All we have is the present and, um, we really want to make, uh, the best of the present. And when it comes to people that we care about, our friends, our loved ones, you really want to let them know how much you care about them. Mm.
0: So important. Love is the killer ingredient yeah it is It's Always. the best it's the secret sauce it's the secret sauce max thank you so much for not only coming on this podcast but being in our series we just got so much incredible feedback um, about you and your information that you presented in the broken brain docu-series and of course early in the year when your book came out our community saw an email about your book and how aligned it was with the with the um, movie and some of the lessons inside broken brain but for those that missed it or are new to the podcast Uh, Where can they find out more about Genius Foods, your work, Genius Life podcast? Uh, Give us the rundown.
1: Yeah, so pick up Genius Foods, anywhere books are sold. Um, You can also go to GeniusFoodsBook.com, GeniusFoodsBook.com to download a free sample chapter. I'm uh, the host of the Genius Life podcast. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can check it out. iTunes, Spotify, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And then find me on social media. I'm, you know, on Instagram at Max Lugavere. I'm very active on Instagram every day posting stories and updates. And then finally, if you uh, really want to, you know, get in deep into my information, I have a newsletter that I send out once a week at MaxLugavere.com. l u g a Max v e r e lugaver ecom And uh, I send out study breakdowns, my take on various nutrition trends. And just for signing up, you'll get uh an 11 supplement pdf a pdf with the 11 supplements that um, i use and that you can use to boost your brain function
0: and the depth that you have with all your content i just want to applaud you there's always uh it's never put out hastily it's never quick even your instagram post they have layers and there's always a message behind them so i just want to acknowledge you for that and making all the information super digestible for everybody listening max thank you again for being an incredible friend and for also being on this podcast and sharing all the knowledge that you have.
1: Thank you so much, Drew. It's been an honor.